You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. So our text today is taken from 2 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which, you are, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, today we begin a short series titled Solas, or the five solas, which mean the five alone statements. Uh, These are historic Protestant declarations of truth that summarize Christian teaching and frame the life of faith. Now, I have to admit that some of the ideas and the issues and the controversies that these original solas were uh, intending to um, clarify, that those issues have changed over the last 500 years, but the conclusions remain the same. These are timeless answers to the never-ending stream of questions that we face in Christianity throughout time. And so I'm going to give you an overview real quick of what those five solas are going to be, and then we'll begin with the first. The first is sola scriptura, scripture alone. Solus Christus, any guesses? Christ alone. Sola fide, it's a little bit more difficult. Faith alone. Sola gratia. Grace alone, sole dea gloria, SDG, to the glory of God alone. You are not interested in a Latin lesson. Clearly, I don't speak it, not qualified to teach it, so that will be the extent of it. You've got my word on that. But here's why I believe that these statements are just as important for us today than they were hundreds of years ago. And the reason is that throughout the years, many thoughts and ideas have contended for the position of ultimate. Like this is the most important within Christianity. Even traditions of the church have been elevated to become sacred and unquestionable. Oh, no, 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 we don't question that. Why? For example, I was at a leader's training meeting some years ago, and someone spoke up and said, I don't think that you can be a Christian without understanding intertestamental period and second temple Judaism. And everyone in the room looked at each other like, I guess we're not Christians. <laughs> like, it was, I remember this because of how absurd it was. But think about these statements that we hear today. The last two election cycles, I have heard explicitly from both sides of the aisle People say, I don't think that you can be a Christian if you voted for so-and-so. I heard that. And so 
on one hand, we have these ideas being elevated to ultimate that shouldn't. And then on the other hand, just like the first century, the time and context that the Apostle Paul was writing into, we are also at risk of being deceived. There are imposters out there just like there were 2,000 years ago. There are people deceiving. There are people being deceived. There are all kinds of false narratives about what the good life is and what life is all about. And if we are to be honest, we're a little bit more gullible than we like to believe. And so today we begin with the important doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone, which means this, that the Bible alone is the ultimate authority over belief and practices within Christian faith. The Bible. Now this doesn't mean that traditions are bad. Our children are going through catechism right now. I will quote from different creeds and catechisms. This does not mean that we can't learn from any other source. This does not mean that this week when you're at a work training and someone mentions best practices for an efficient workplace that you're like, no, 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 Bible alone, Bible alone. No, it means who we are, what we do, how we live as disciples of Jesus Christ must always come under the ultimate authority of the scriptures as the primary source of God's revelation and the truest measurement of faith and faithfulness. So today what I want to do is I want to explore this theme under three headings. Autonomy, which means self-ruling, um, authorship, and then authority. So let's begin with the theme of autonomy. Now during the Protestant Reformation, which was some 500 years ago, the main dispute that Sola Scriptura sought to address was the unbridled authority, the unbridled authority of the sovereign church in Rome and all of its traditions, which claimed, and this is sort of an oversimplification, but the claim was this, that the Bible and church tradition have virtually equal authority to determine what a life of faith and faithfulness ought to look like. Now, that is still a thing. That belief is, for better or for worse, still an idea out there. But today, Sola Scriptura challenges, I believe, an equally pressing problem in the church. And that problem is a problem that is prevalent in American evangelical Christianity. And what I believe that Sola Scriptura needs to confront today is the unbridled authority of the sovereign self. Our belief that we are autonomous beings, that I am a self-ruling person, that I am free to make the decisions, decisions independently from any authority figure, that I am supposed to live my truth and I am supposed to live in accordance to my understanding of what God ought to be and ought to do. This is the idea that I belong to myself, that I determine who I am, that I determine what I should or shouldn't do. No one has the right to define that for me or to determine the direction of my life but me. And if the scriptures are consulted, and that is a big if in evangelical Christianity today, but if the scriptures are consulted, it's just that, as consultation. You know, in, involving it to sort of weigh my best options, not as ultimate truth, but just one more source of 
guidance and wisdom so that I can make the best decision for my life. Does any of this sound familiar right now? So why is Sola Scriptura important today? An author named Charles Taylor said this, for many people today to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority just doesn't seem comprehensible as a comprehensible form of spiritual life. The injunction or the the mandate of our age is only accept what rings true to your own inner self. Listen to your own inner voice. So today what he's saying is we can't even imagine, we can't even fathom what life would look like if it was lived, surrendered, and submitted to God's word as ultimate authority over us. In the eyes of Western culture today, the greatest moral failure is to not be true to yourself. The greatest moral failure is to fail to listen to your own inner voice. Sin used to be defined as failing to live according to God's will. Today, sin is defined as not following your own heart. And because of not following our own heart, we feel guilt and shame and a sense of we've done wrong. And the terrible problem that we have on our hands is that as we look around the world, what we're seeing right now is we're seeing people that have been listening to their own inner voice, and it's resulted in horrific things. People are listening to their own impulses. People are being true to themselves, and it's having devastating effects on other people. And it's not hard to see that we are buckling and breaking both emotionally and relationally and even societally under the weight of our own autonomy. It turns out that autonomous living is not good for us. And we were never designed to have it our way. Look at me in verse 10. You, however. So with this cultural backdrop in the first century as well in the 21st century, you, however, have followed my teaching. My conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering. What is Paul doing here? Paul is commending Timothy for not following his own desires like those described in verses 1 through 9. If you have in your own time this week, look at verses 1 through 9. It is not a pretty picture of when people follow their own inner voice. But Paul says, Timothy, that is not you. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith. He has walked in a path that was laid out before him through the sacred writings of the Old Testament, which were taught to him by his mother and his grandmother, we're told elsewhere, but also through the witness of the apostles, which would later make up the New Testament scriptures. You guys still with me? Okay, just remind me once in a while. Verses 14 through 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, Again, that was his mother and grandmother and the apostles. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So, to receive the Bible for what the Bible is, to receive the Bible 
in a way that submits to what is found within, we have to forsake our own autonomy. We have to learn to put ourselves in its proper place. I am not my own, but I belong, both in body and soul, in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. This week, that's just probably a really good reminder for yourself. I am not my own. This is not about me. I'm not left to figure this out on my own. I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And like the psalmist shows, we actually have to learn to quiet our own inner voice. Not only do we have to push against the cultural tides that say, listen to your own inner voice, we have to learn to quiet that inner voice. The psalmist says in Psalm 62, for God alone, O my soul, so he's speaking to his own inner man, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, aka shut up, for my hope is in him. He's putting his soul in its place. Quiet. Shh. Psalm 131. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I don't think too highly of myself, but I have calmed and what? Quieted my soul. When was the last time you quieted your soul? When was the last time you said, that's nice, but please shut up? Hearing God speak to you through the scriptures depends vitally depends on silencing the nagging sound of your own inner voice and all of its demands about what life ought to look like. Shh, I'm listening to God right now. Autonomy. Secondly, the second theme we have here is authorship. Now, some, something very important to mention here, that the Bible isn't just a book about God. The claim is actually deeper than that. The claim is that the Bible is from God. It is a book authored by God. Look at me again in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Breathed out by God. So throughout the Bible, the idea of God breathing is a very powerful image. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Bible describes the process of God creating the cosmos and everything in it by the power of his word. The sun, the moon, the sky, the stars, the sea, every living creature, everything that moves, everything that has breath. But then, when the Lord went to form humanity, we're told this in Genesis 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and did what? breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So the Bible says something very interesting about humanity and it's this, man is simply dust until God breathes the breath of life into him. You're simply dust apart from the breath of God. In the New Testament, after the resurrection, Jesus um, meets his disciples. These are scared, uncertain doubting, spiritually floundering disciples. And then Jesus breathes on them and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. 
And these become completely new people with new life, new vitality, new courage, new motivation, new energy to seek first the kingdom of God. He breathes on them. Breathing, breathing, breathing. So there's a theme that's building through the unfolding narrative of scripture here. And then what Paul does here is he ties a bow on it. And he shows Timothy and us, the reader, how we too can experience the breath of God that brings new life and vitality. Here's how we can receive the breath of God in our lungs and in our lives as well. It's through the word of God that is the breath of God. That same powerful word that said, let there be light, and then there was light, now speaks into our lives. God spoke the world into being, Genesis. Ezekiel 37, God says, speak or prophesy over this valley of dry bones and they rise. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of that tomb and he rose. When God speaks, things change, including the reader, including us. It's the word of God breathed out by God, Paul says, that then makes the servant of God complete. How do we become complete? How are we thoroughly equipped to become the men and women of God that we're intended to be? Through the word of God. Only the word of the Lord is capable of transforming our lives and renewing our minds. Now, Paul states that the the whole collection of sacred writings, which he defines as the scriptures, are inspired. They are God-breathed, which means this. This is my most sort of condensed, my best version of what this means. It means that God, the author, big A author, was at work within the hearts and minds of a diverse group of small A authors, i.e. Isaiah, Jeremiah, fill in the blank, living in different times and different places, speaking to different cultural circumstances in order to reveal the timeless and unified message of the Bible. I told you it was gonna be a little bit technical today, right? You've been warned. So the big A author working through little A authors in order to present the unified testimony or message of the Bible. Very interesting, uh, mysterious, but interesting process, right? Um, In 2 Peter, we're told this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, in other words, more trustworthy than any other voice, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced By the will of man, this is not just men determining what they think Christianity or a life of faith should be, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. How do we have the scriptures? Well, we're just told. God carried them along by the Holy Spirit. So he describes this this process of inspiration as men being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in this statement, we discover actually a very helpful illustration. He is painting a word picture for us here. It's like a ship being driven by the wind. And this is a very vivid 
image for me because my oldest daughter took up sailing last year. And she was telling me that she's able to sail into the wind. And I was like, how do you sail into the wind? And she's like, it's easy. You just go like this. I'm like, it doesn't make sense to me. I don't get it. But as a father of a sailor, is that, is that is, what do you call someone who sails? Yeah, okay, a sailor. She's a sailor. <laughs> this, this, this image is very vivid for me. So unlike some of the ideas that I think that we have in our minds, such as like some sort of conjuring that's happened or some sort of hypnosis or like the author's like eyes rolled back in their head and like God took over their hand like thou shall not like. Instead, Peter describes, now picture this with me. Peter describes the biblical authors raising the sails of surrender and faith, so to speak, and then God breathing the wind that directed their words. And while God was in charge of this process, he's the active agent in this process, there was still full and coherent human participation throughout the entire time, just like in the case of a seafarer. There's still language, there's still culture, even as you read through the scriptures, you see personality. God works through the authors in a way that does not erase the human element or erase human culture or even erase human participation and personality, but God drives them along by the Holy Spirit. So in a way, as to God's will and intent is perfectly reserved and yet the person is not compromised. Pretty amazing, right? God is the author. Thank you, David. (laughs) I found it amazing too. So God is the author. And what that means is that the Bible is God's self-disclosure. You know, faith and religion has been described as like four men in the dark, you know, sort of feeling around on an elephant. And they're like, well, no, no, God's like this. And the other person's like, no, 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 God's like this. No, no, God's like this. But what Peter says here is, no, actually it's like a lamp shining. There is clarity. And what that lamp is illuminating is who God is and how we are to relate to him. The Bible is the revelation of God's heart. The Bible is the revelation of his character and his promises. And ultimately, it's the story of his plan to rescue humanity and to restore all things. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. It was written over the span of approximately 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different continents, in three different languages. And despite the different genres and the different languages and the different times represented, because it was divinely authored, it tells one unified story of God's redeeming grace through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. This isn't ultimately a story about us. It's for us. It's not about us. That's why we get into a lot of trouble when we start to try to like read America into the book of Revelation. Like stop, no, nope, nope. It's not about us, it's for us. It's not a disjointed collection of do's and don'ts. It's the story of what God has done to redeem us from the curse of sin to inaugurate his plan to make all things new, and it's now a description of what life in his healing kingdom ought to look like. 
And the gospel tells us that this author didn't just write the script and then drop it into our laps to be performed like the Phantom of the Opera, who writes this amazing piece and then drops it and says, perform it. No. Like many authors do, the divine author wrote himself into the story. If you've ever seen an Alfred Hitchcock film, you're always anticipating seeing at least a cameo from him. Or you, Mar- you weird Marvel fans are always looking for Stanley. Oh, there he is. God rest his soul. Stephen King is said to believe, uh, you know, show up in some of his stories. Dorothy Sayers, the great English writer, wrote herself into a story that she fell in love with, the, the main character. But God doesn't just appear as a cameo. But as the main character, as the hero of the story at the center of the human story. In John 1, we're told this, that the word became flesh and blood and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So the word, the son, the full revelation of who God is became human. He became relatable. He became, he came near to us. He took on flesh and blood. He became vulnerable, mortal, pierceable, and even killable. This is how the author of life is also described to us in Hebrews as the author of salvation. Jesus came to fulfill the role that humanity failed to fill in the story. Every command, every do and don't, every law, every covenant requirement that we read of in the Bible Jesus fulfilled perfectly. Why? So that the righteous requirements of God could be fulfilled on our behalf. And he associated so closely with us that he was willing to die in our place, to pay the price for our sins and for the price for our demands for autonomy. And then he rose from the dead on the third day in order to rewrite our broken stories so that our stories could be stories of redemption as well. So when we see the Bible, and here's the point, when we see the Bible in light of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us, our perspective of it changes. We we can never look at it the same. It means that it goes from being this like boring collection of disjointed ancient literature to becoming a dynamic, epic story of rescue. And it goes from being this like crushing weight of all the things I have to do to try to be a good person and all the things I have to do to try to earn God's approval and my place in his family and it becomes a life-giving testimony of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and now what God is doing through us through the ministry of his Holy Spirit. I promise you'll never look at the Bible the same. So let's look finally at authority, at authority. If God is the author of life, and as I mentioned earlier, as Hebrews says, if he is the author of our salvation, then this author certainly has authority over all of the characters that he's made, and certainly over all of the characters that he has redeemed. The author has the authority to make us how he pleases. 
to form us into the kind of people that he pleases. And like the author in any good story, and this is the mark of a good story, by the way, like the author of any good story, he reserves the right to incorporate challenges, to incorporate suffering and tragedy and trials. He has the right to put tension into our stories. He has the right to build in uncertainty and mystery into the story. He can do what he pleases because guess what? He's God. He's God. I listened to a recent podcast called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. Very interesting, uh, very intense, very not censored language. Just let me warn you about that. And it focuses on some recent backlash that the, the Harry Potter author has faced and, and, and has been challenged with as she has sort of confronted some of the behaviors and the ideologies of the trans right movement. And it's really interesting because J.K. Rowling was really despised by like the right conservative Christians whenever the stories were coming out before. Now the vitriol has changed to being hated by the left. And I'm not going to go into the details about that, but I found it really interesting as you, as you hear these countless testimonies of people that used to love her and resonated so deeply with this author because she created a place in this world where they felt like they could live. They didn't feel understood in this world, but in her stories, they found characters to identify, they felt seen, they felt understood, they felt represented, represented. but now, 20 years later or whatever, they feel very angry by her views. And I heard some really scornful statements about her, and one uh, that stood out to me was a clip that's actually repeated throughout the whole series. It's a woman who said this, what J.K. Rowling is doing is disgusting and problematic. Let's face it, Hermione would punch this woman in the face right now. Let the full weight of that come. If you're not familiar with Harry Potter, that's like one of the main characters punching the author in the face. Does any of that sound familiar? As absurd as that sounds, you know, a character lashing out at the author, I couldn't help but think that this is what we do to God. This is clearly what happened at the cross. But it's also what we do when we rebel against God's word. It's a slap in the face. It's what we do when we demand things our way. It's us saying that we know better than the author. It's us saying that we are wiser than this author is. It's us saying that our grasp on morality and justice and joy is somehow greater than God's. Really, isn't it? An author named Sky Jethany said this, my secret is that I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as well as in heaven. But look at this passage again, verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So teaching us what is good and true and beautiful, 
telling us what God disapproves of, correcting us where we're wrong, which takes the humility to acknowledge that we don't have this thing figured out. I hope that you figured that out by now. And then training us to do the right things in the right way. That's a simple way to remember what righteousness is. The right things in the right way. And so the question I have for you today is, have you come under the authority of God's word? Are you submitting to God's teaching and his reproof and his correction and his training? Are you open to God challenging you, to refining you, to shaping you? Or are you still trying to make yourself complete? Verse 17, that the man of God, or that simply just means the servant of God, which is another way of describing a disciple, that the servant of God may be what? Equipped for every good work. So as I look at this, I think it comes down to like one, not easy, but simple determination. And here it is. Who has the better grasp on what a good life looks like? Is it me? Or is it God? Who defines what true, good, and beautiful looks like? Me or God? And who has the ability to truly complete me? C.S. Lewis said, God invented, as an author invents characters in a novel, all the different people that you and I are intended to be. In that sense, our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to be myself without him. The more I resist him, and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. Your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will come as you're looking for him. You should know today, you've been warned. We as a church are committed to God's word. Kind of feels like an understatement, but it's actually maybe revolutionary today. We are committed to God's word. We are not trying to figure this thing out on our own. We are not trying to outwit culture or outwit God. And we certainly are not trying to innovate Christianity. No Christianity PR going on here. We are seeking the Spirit's help to hear God's word, and we are seeking the Spirit's help to respond in faith. And what I want to do is challenge you this week to seek out positive examples of people submitting their lives to God's authority within this church. Ask someone, what has it done in your life? What is God's word in your life? And if that person has submitted to God's word, how has it changed their life? Listen to the testimonies. See the countless examples of how people are truly renewed through the word of God. And listen for freedom. Listen for joy. Listen for completeness. And allow this to cause you then to consider whether or not you too have come under the powerful authority of God-breathed, the God-breathed word to us today. Amen? Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you.